Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Jim Begley, the director of the William Brennan Institute for Labor Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. In today's show, Begley, who was raised in a union family, talks about organized labor's historic rise in the face of oppressive working conditions, its decline over the last few decades, and the resurgence of unions in recent years to tackle inequity, support human rights in the workplace, and to hold on to labor's historic victories for adult and child workers. The struggle to have the working class gain voting rights after the revolution, to gain better working conditions, to gain better wages, it's been a one step forward, two steps back throughout the duration of our nation. Jim Begley is the director of the William Brennan Institute for Labor Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. He grew up in a union household in Omaha and spent 15 years addressing labor and human resources issues for the city of Omaha. Since 2012, he has been an elected member of the Metropolitan Utilities District, or MUD, Board of Directors in Omaha. Begley is a member of the UNO chapter of the American Association of University Professors, the faculty union at UNO. Begley received his master's degree in public administration and bachelor's degree in political science from UNO. Begley and his wife, who is a public school teacher and union member, live in Omaha with their family. Jim Begley. Welcome to Lives. Stuart, thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here with you. Let's set the scene a little bit then. What do you mean when you talk about labor and perhaps labor studies? Sure. So labor studies is simply the trying to understand why men and women come together in the workplace to form alliances and solidarity in issues revolving around wages, benefits, and conditions of the workplace. So unions go back to the founding of this nation. Unions are simply a not-for-profit organization of men and women coming together to sell their intelligence, their strength, their experience to an employer. So I I appreciate that idea. I, I don't think I've ever heard unions reference in the way that we could call them nonprofits. And I, I really like that explanation, this idea that people come together to collectively represent their uh, common interests. We often see unions in opposition or we consider them in opposition. So what are they sometimes considered to be in opposition to? Well, I present non-credit classes to mostly union members in apprentice classes. And the first question I ask is, have any of you ever had any formal education through your K through 12 years about what organized labor is or about labor unions. I have yet to have one hand raised in my presentations from those members. So when I speak about unions, when I speak with union members, people really don't have an understanding, even those that pay union dues. So with regard to your question, Unions are misunderstood, and I 
take great pride in helping Nebraskans, union members, and non-members to understand the value that unions bring to society. So I think a lot of that conflict is based on misperceptions and the general misunderstanding of why we have unions. You talked about how unions have been a feature of American society since the founding of the nation. Unions go back, organized labor goes back further than that. I don't want to invite you into giving a lecture, but what is some of that history of uh, organized labor, whether starting in this country or perhaps even further back? Sure. So during colonial times, when the country was forming, those that wanted to make a profit in the colonies, they needed workers here, primarily an agricultural uh, society, an agricultural economy. But as the port city started to have businesses created, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, a lot of the Europeans that came over, they needed workers. So what they would do, they would go to poor parts of Europe. They would distribute leaflets and flyers to say, hey, come to America. You can make 10 times as much money over in the new colonies as you can here. Young women, you can marry a rich husband if you come over. So they were not looking for men and women of social refinement. Rather, they were looking for and basically tried to exploit those who were impoverished in Europe, promising them a much better life in the colonies. Well, they found out that life wasn't better and rather they became indentured servants and they were exploited as indentured servants. They were put in five to seven year contracts where they would be housed and fed, most of them, not all. And then of course, we had slavery brought to the country. So men and women back in the early days of the colonies began to form alliances to protest as we do today, poor wages, poor working conditions. And the first known labor strike occurred in 1806, it was Philadelphia shoemakers who had received a pay increase for the great work they did leading up to the holidays. And the owners of the shoe companies said, well, that's great. We can now cut back on that. And they continued to cut back. And the shoemakers went on strike and the shoe company owners took it to court in a case called Commonwealth versus Polis. And the jury ruled in favor of the shoe owners. And the judge, based on English common law, said that this is a criminal conspiracy of these workers forming together for better wages and better benefits. So that prevailed, that mindset prevailed for the first half of the 19th century. So it's always been a, a difficult slog for men and women coming together to organize, to fight for better wages and better benefits and better conditions of employment. So what happened then? Because we're going to hit a point where organized labor does have a heyday and we've receded from that somewhat over the last 50, 60 years, but what was that slog and, and how did organized labor reach a heyday whenever that was? Sure, so the persistence and the stubbornness of working men and women 
One of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in which he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The first known strike in the country was in 1791 in Philadelphia with carpenters who went on strike to put in place a 10-hour workday. And going back even a few years before that, the American Revolution, there's a, a great series of books, a volume of books called The History of the Labor Movement by an author and historian named Philip Foner. And Foner wrote quite extensively about the work of the sons and daughters of liberty during the American Revolution. And of course, in our U.S. history courses, we give praise, justifiably so, to our founding fathers, George Washington, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. But what we don't hear are the contributions from those working class ancestors of ours who were the ones on the front lines of the American Revolution, who dumped the tea in Boston Harbor, who protested English rule. And what we also don't learn is that those who were in power were landowners, attorneys, the well-off back in those days. So those working class ancestors of ours were really the reasons why we won the American Revolution. But we rarely, ever, if ever, hear about the credit that they deserve. And Philip Foner said that the revolution would have been stillborn were it not for our working class ancestors in the American Revolution. So again, the struggle to have the working class gain voting rights after the revolution, to gain better working conditions, to gain better wages, it's been a one step forward, two steps back throughout the duration of our nation. And as we went ahead into the mid-19th century, there was a court ruling that actually disavowed the criminal conspiracy doctrine, which had been the prevailing thought for most of the 19th century. And then at that time, a few decades later, we had the Gilded Age, which really formed the backbone and the impetus for the labor movement. So what impact did the Gilded Age have on the development of labor and organized, you know, these kind of organized movements? Sure. And to, to hearken back to the, the great quote from Charles Dickens, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times, as you mentioned, Stuart, for a very small number of, of rich and powerful men who were the industrialists in that age. Others dubbed them to be called robber barons for the way in which they amassed their huge amounts of wealth and power. So roughly from post-Civil War, 1870 to 1900, you mentioned Carnegie, there was John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt. So the railroad industry, the, the coal industry, the oil industry, all came together to make mass amounts of money. But the one thing that was consistent with all these industrialists was how poorly they treated their workers, how they exploited them, how they treated them as a commodity and not as a human being. So there are a number of 
instances in which men and women push back against this greed and the barbaric way in which they demanded their workers to perform, whether it be in coal mines, on the railroad lines, whatever industry was making money, it was being made from the hard work of men and women. So there were different uprisings throughout that period. There was the famous Haymarket Affair in Chicago in May of 1886, in which 80,000 of all different races, all different creeds, all different religions came together for the eight-hour workday. And tragically, there was an incident in which after a, a speaker got up in a otherwise peaceful rally, somebody had thrown a bomb into the, the crowd and the men and women who were labor leaders at the time were accused of spurring the crowd to violence. And there were four men hanged, Albert Parsons and August Spies, two of the four. And again, when labor thought they were making progress, something like this would occur that would impede their progress. So not only were these four men, and it was they later went back to almost disavow the fact that why did these men get hanged? There was a lot of publicity on this event and other events that put organized labor in a negative light. The leaders of the movement at Haymarket were foreigners, quote unquote. They were accused of bringing in a foreign mindset. They were radical. They were anarchists. So organized labor had a number of setbacks similar to Haymarket in which the print media at the time, some would be sympathetic to organized labor and others would castigate organized labor. And unfortunately, that negative impression, the negative perspective given about organized labor tend to prevail throughout the country. What was the pivot point to unions experiencing a, a heyday, which I, I don't know exactly when that was, but I want to say maybe the 60s and 70s was, the 1960s and 1970s was perhaps when unions were at their strongest in um, American history. So what was the pivot point and, and what did unions achieve to, to be at that point where they had a heyday? The seminal moment in bringing organized, un, organized labor to a strong point was the election of FDR in 19. 32. He became president in 1933. And as we know, the country was just, had just been going through the Great Depression. 25% of working-aged men at the time were unemployed. That's hard to imagine. 25% when our unemployment rate has been hovering at 4% in this day and age. So when FDR came in office with his new deal, he experimented. He tried different things to try to bring the economy out of the Great Depression. To bring workers into the fold in 1935 as part of the New Deal, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act. This was the first time in the history of the nation in which collective bargaining, the right to organize, became codified in federal law. So that law, along with the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, kind of the two-legged uh, foundation for organized labor. The Fair Labor Standards Act established a minimum wage. It established originally a 44-hour work week that then, then became a 40-hour work week. 
It put regulations for the first time on child labor in this country. And I, I always share with my students in class that I was talking about the, the moral arc a few minutes ago. The first known strike for the eight-hour workday was in 1791. It took until 1938. There were different states that put laws into effect, but it took until 1938 to codify an eight-hour, a 10-hour, then an eight-hour workday. So the persistence, the, the courage with which men and women continue to pursue generations upon generations trying to make change happen. It doesn't happen swiftly most of the time, but it, but it does happen. So that ushered in, those two laws really ushered in a dramatic increase in the number of men and women who became members of unions. That led to the, what's known as the age of prosperity from 1949 to 1973. 33 to 35% of American workers belong to unions at that time. And not by coincidence, that was a period of time in which we had the smallest difference of wages between the working men and women of this country and those that were well off. So that period of 25 years was really the heyday of the American labor movement. I'm struck by the parallels with today's situation to what you were describing. You talked about 1933 and FDR becoming the president and uh, the, the New Deal and the Great Depression at that time. And in 2009, we had the Great Recession, which then uh, was compounded you know, a decade later, as we all know, with um, COVID and the pandemic. And it seems that since the low of public appreciation for unions around the Great Recession, there's been a resurgence, whereas I think Gallup recently just shared that the support for unions has been climbing steadily in the US and it seems to have really accelerated. It's um, from a low point of 48% in 2009, which was the you know, around the Great Recession time, to 71% last year. What's happening today? with this rising support for organized labor. Sure. And that 71% includes 77% of those between the ages of 18 and 34. So it's hard to take a step back and realize all the things we've lived through in this century. It started with 9-11. We had the economic calamity that you referred to, Stuart, in 2007 and 2008. From the 48% in which Americans approved organized labor in that period of time till, till present day, a few different things have occurred, I believe, and, and not to mention this little thing called the pandemic we've lived through for the last three years. I think as we've, we've gone through these, these very trying times, men and women are trying to raise families, trying to make ends meet with their God-given ability. The pandemic, I think, is a great example of people realizing, okay, what's going on in our economy? We understand that if somebody wants to go into business, they go in to make a profit. There's no law that says you have to make a certain amount of money. There's no law that says I they can make as much money as, as they can, so long as they abide by the law. When hardworking men and women were seeing 
the incredible amounts of money that corporations were making, that employers were making, and the fact that their wages had been, had been stagnant going back to the 1970s, I think men and women finally realized this is not right. And what institution has been leading the way in those fights going back to the inception of our country? It's been organized labor. Organized labor has been there to fight for in the civil rights movement. They fought for women's rights. They've obviously stood up for working men and women. So I think men and women in this country have said enough is enough. We support what organized labor has been doing. And now I think the country has come to a better understanding of what organized labor stands for. And it's really quite fascinating in this day and age when we talk about our democracy being in peril in this nation. Whoever would have thought of that? When I was growing up, I never would have thought of that. But the one thing that organized labor has done among many things, it brings democracy to the workplace. So if a corporate executive can go in to negotiate with a board for his or her salary, why can't a group of men and women come together, which is lawful in this country from the 1935 Wagner Act, why can't a group of people come together to say, let's fight for better wages? Let's fight for better benefits. Let's fight for better conditions of employment. And I think through all these dramatic things we've lived through in the 21st century, I think now is a time where labor has an incredible opportunity to make an even greater impact than it has. And in the years coming, um, as I mentioned, the, the, the great leadership shown by the younger generation, the millennials. We see it in Amazon. We see it at Starbucks. Right now is a really hopeful time for organized labor. You talked about the robber barons 150, 100 years ago. Are we in that same moment? So an, another data point that struck me from reading the New York Times over the weekend, and, and the point is that since 2020, the richest 1% in the world has captured nearly two-thirds of all new wealth. So that's all new wealth globally, which is twice as much money as the rest of the world's population. And at the beginning of 2022, it's estimated that 10 billionaire men possess six times as much wealth as the poorest 3 billion on earth. So in the United States alone, the richest 10% of households own more than 70% of the country's assets. And so we have, I think, since the pandemic, been refocused as a society on some of these financial and social inequities. Are we back in an age of that robber baron mindset and the corollary, which is the pushback from organized labor that they're as much a part of the production of this wealth as anybody else? I think we are. Um, not entirely, but given those discrepancies of the uber wealthy making, I think the last I read was that executives make 340 times the amount of the average worker in this country. And that's just continued to get larger as the years have gone on, especially in the 21st century. So sadly, I think we are, there is a parallel between the Gilded Age and what we're living through right now. 
but I, I tend to be a glass is half full kind of person. So the amazing opportunity, as I was talking about a minute ago, that is in front of organized labor right now. I don't think we can get 71% of this country to believe that the sky is blue, but 71% of this country has a strong positive opinion of organized labor. I also mentioned the great leadership that's been shown by the, the younger generation, which as we know in this country, historically, a lot of the great movements have been ushered in and, and led by the youth in this country. So yes, we are living through a second Gilded Age to some extent, but I'm, I'm equally as excited about what is to come for organized labor going forward. I don't want to pretend that a union or the organizing of labor is an unalloyed good. And so as much as we've talked about the demonization of unions and we've talked about um, the headwinds that unions faced, what are some of the reasonable pushbacks against the idea of collective action or the entities that represent collective labor? I do talk about in, in my classes that a reasonable pushback in terms of historically is that some of the previous leaders in the labor movement have not been the most upstanding men in society, but look at any facet or any institution in our country or in the world. They're human beings. You can't find a business. You can't find a religion that hasn't experienced leaders who have been suspect in terms of their ethics. So when I get up to, to give a presentation, I don't tell people that these are, um, that all labor leaders in the history of the country have been the most virtuous men and women. Has there been violence in organized labor's history? Yes, there has. That's a sad fact, but also the flip side of that is, were it not for some of those horrible events and the sacrifice that those men and women made, I don't think we would be sitting here today with the labor laws we have in place, although we need to improve upon them drastically, given that those go back to 1935 and 1938, respectively. So is there a fair pushback? Yes. But given, given that, some of those things led to a better life for those of us who followed in their footsteps. I mean, there's a long history that you've shared with us. It, in some ways, it sounds, uh, the, the goals of unions sound um, both worthy, but potentially utopian. Why are so few people not joining unions? A few different reasons. Globalization has had a lot to do with the, member, the number of members dwindling throughout the 20th century and the early 21st century. We have weak labor laws. While I just touted the Wagner Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act, those go back 80 plus years. There have been efforts to strengthen labor laws. In 2009, we had the Employee Free Choice Act or EFCA that was very close to getting passed. There were different priorities from the Obama administration at the time, namely healthcare, that they moved as strong as they could on that issue. And then Senator Ted Kennedy passed away the special election to replace him. A gentleman named Scott Brown, who was a Republican, got elected. 
So the Democrats had 60 votes with Ted Kennedy in the Senate when he passed away, sadly, and, and Scott Brown got elected. That took away the 60th vote to get EFCA through. The PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act, was introduced in Congress, the previous Congress. That passed the House of Representatives, but that also failed to reach the 60-vote threshold to overcome a filibuster from the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. So weak labor laws, and because of the weak labor laws that we have, there's a lack of enforcement for when employers violate the law. I, I find, find this sadly comical that the agency overseeing labor, the National Labor Relations Board, their budget going back to 2013 has been stagnant. It has not raised a penny with the exception of last year, the Biden administration saw to it to put more money into the National Labor Relations Board. So we have more workers out there and fewer employees at the National Labor Relations Board. We have an inability to enforce when employers are aware of union organizing efforts in their workplace. With impunity, employers violate labor law on a daily basis. And when they do get caught in the act, there's no teeth to holding them to account in terms of the fines are very minimal. It's less than a slap on the wrist. So with any business, of course, the way to make a point with them and to provide a message to them is to hit them in the pocketbook or hit them in the checkbook. Well, unfortunately, we don't have labor laws on the books right now to make it hurt for when they do violate the American citizen's right to form a union in the workplace. So I think we've heard nationally, and, and you've shared a lot about some of these national trends, national movements. As we're recording this, a Starbucks store in Lincoln just voted to unionize. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, what, what's happening in the local uh, scene as regards organized labor? Th those efforts at Starbucks have, have provided a real shot in the arm for the labor movement here in town. You'll recall that in 2021, the union at Kellogg went on strike. Um, they were on strike for a number of weeks. I was actually proud to go out and march on the picket line with them on a chilly October morning in 2021. The president of the AFL-CIO was in attendance that day, Liz Schuler, to provide support, to give encouragement, to let our brothers and sisters know that we support them. And it was really quite moving to find and to listen to labor leaders go up to the microphone that morning and hear these men and women who've been on strike. They're not receiving a paycheck. They had the courage to take on management, to become an equal partner at that table. And unions, firefighters, laborers, one by one, went up to that microphone, providing checks to the union on strike at Kellogg to help those working families get through. They eventually did come to an agreement with a contract. And that was the first strike in the Omaha area of that scale in quite some time. So it was a, a dramatic moment. It was for the strikers. They had put their livelihoods on the line in solidarity with their union brothers and sisters. 
and they eventually got to a reasonable contract. So with that, Omaha hasn't had a lot of labor strife in recent years, which is good. I, I think it, it speaks to, I don't know if I describe it as healthy, but there are instances where labor and, and employers do work together and, and do find common ground. There are always, always ways to improve, always issues that need to be looked at. But for the most part, in Omaha, things have been relatively quiet. Now, that can change tomorrow. That can change next week. Um, we have strong union leadership in the state and in the city of Omaha and in Lincoln. So we always have eyes and ears to make sure I'm not saying things are great for organized labor in the state of Nebraska. In the nation, we have about 10.1% of the workers who are union workers. In the state of Nebraska, it's about 8.1%. So we have a lot of work to do to encourage and educate men and women on the value that organized labor brings to society and what it would bring to what it would mean to their family. You were raised in a union family. So yes. when you look back on your childhood, sort of what stands out to you just generally from your childhood, your upbringing, and especially as regards it being a union household? Sure. I, I appreciate you asking that question because at the outset of my presentations, I always encourage those in the audience that share your story. Everybody's got their own unique story and it's powerful. So my particular story I'm the youngest of four boys raised in an Irish Catholic household. My father, Dan Begley, was a mailman. Dan the Mailman, as he was known as, for 43 years. He was a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers Branch 5 here in Omaha. My mother was a public school teacher. She was raised in Sioux City, attended Helan High School, earned a bachelor's degree from Clark College, and a master's degree from Loyal University and came back and her, her first teaching job was actually at Helan High School where she graduated from. She moved down to Omaha. She taught at the old Tech High School, which is now the teacher administration building on 30th and coming. She met my dad. She was a, a union teacher herself. And as I relate it to my class or a class that I'm teaching, because we don't receive formal education on unions, on the labor movement, most of what I learned about the labor movement was at the kitchen table. Dad was a union steward, very strong supporter of organized labor. And in our household, the four of us boys were taught a few simple rules. Get to mass on Sunday. Don't be late. We happen to cheer for the Notre Dame fighting Irish. So we all cheer for Notre Dame. We all, we all vote the right way to support candidates that, that are strongly affiliated with organized labor. If I had to point to one event, Stuart, growing up in 1981, Ronald Reagan was in the first year of his presidency. And at that time, over 11,000 air traffic controllers who were union members went on strike. A short time after that, President Reagan, who ironically was the president of the Screen Actors Guild Union, fired over 11,000 union workers. And I was only eight years old at the time. It sent a 
shivered shriek of fear to my mom and dad and all of those in the labor movement. And that was the first of many acts taken by the Reagan administration, which were detrimental to the union movement. So that, that one act by President Reagan, just seeing the reaction from my parents and the, the ripple effect that that had on organized labor has stayed with me my entire life. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of telling the story about the sacrifices that my mom and dad made. Dad always told the story about my great-grandfather, Michael Begley. He worked at the Cudahy Packing Plant in South Omaha. In 1924, he died on the floor of Cudahy Packing Plant. And this was before they were unionized, but dad would always joke, doggone it, they didn't pay him for a full day. They just paid him for a half day, even though he died on the job in the lunchroom. So the sacrifices that were made by previous generations, dad working hard as a mailman for 43 years, mom being a teacher, allowed my brothers and I to have a better life, which is the definition of the American dream, to pass along a better life to those coming behind you. As you mentioned, my, my wife, Rebecca, and I have been married for 25 years. We have three wonderful children. They all started uh, back to school this week. Our oldest, Catherine, is a senior at Creighton. Twin sons, Thomas and Michael. Michael's at Creighton. Thomas is at UNO. Brother Brian is the retired former principal at Miller North High School. He's now the new principal at Blue Stem Middle School in OPS. He and his wife, Pam, have two wonderful sons. My brother, Mark, and his wife, Margaret, live in the Omaha area. Four fantastic daughters. My brother, Danny, who incidentally um, is the vice president of his union, IBW 1483 at OPPD. He's the treasurer of the Omaha Federation of Labor. He's been an employee at OPPD for about 35 years now. And he was also elected to the Omaha City Council in 2021. So all of us, well, first of all, we all married up. We outkicked our coverage, us boys did. But because of the sacrifices that my parents made to allow us to have a, a better life, we've passed that along to our children. And I married up my wife, Rebecca. She's the second oldest of four girls. Her dad, Joe Rouse, and her mom, Jackie Rouse, my in-laws, who I, I adore and love dearly. Joe worked at the Hormel plant in Fremont for 47 years. He was a member of the United Food Commercial Workers Union at Hormel for 47 years. And they had labor strife throughout their history back in the early 80s, many challenges that, that they faced. So I'd like to think that those values that my parents espoused and pass along to myself that my wife, Rebecca, learned from the farm she grew up on in North Bend, Nebraska, and that was, were passed along to her, that we're now passing those same values down to our children so they can fight for and make a better life for those coming up behind us. You talked about your mother being a teacher, and you've shared that your wife is a teacher yes. and obviously involved in unions. Often I hear people in community talk about remembering being a child and the favorite teacher they had and how teachers make a difference in their lives. 
And so it might seem surprising that in the last several years that teachers become demonized in some ways as um, somehow malevolent in, in their attitude towards the growth of you know, children and their personal development. What has been surprising perhaps to, to your wife about how her involvement in what seems to be such a previously beloved profession seems to become something that is um, really frowned upon. I, I think if I had to choose one word to describe, it would be that she's hurt. She's been a teacher for 27 years. She got into the teaching profession for the right reasons. She wanted to utilize her experience, her training to make the lives of children better by providing them with a, a great education. I've never known anybody who was a student in Rebecca's class who didn't love Mrs. Begley as a teacher. And Rebecca is a wonderful human being in addition to being a great teacher, but she has been so upset by this pushback in which a, a small but vocal number of, of folks throughout the country, even in this community, are alleging that teachers are indoctrinating our children, which is malarkey. And the fact she's dedicated her life to students, it's really impacted her, but she's also seen how it's impacted her younger colleagues who got into the profession for the same reason she did. And there have been any number of, of colleagues who said, I've had enough. And they've left the teaching profession. It's continued to be incredibly challenging. We know that teachers don't get paid nearly what they should. They dedicate their after hours. Once they leave the building, they're continuing to put lesson plans together. So it's been a really difficult time, especially during the pandemic, the last three years, knowing that children suffered not being in the classroom, knowing that many fell further behind and the way that teachers have been unfairly castigated by, like I said, a, a small number of, of vocal folks throughout the community and throughout the country. It's been incredibly unfortunate. And uh, I, I'm really proud, incredibly, incredibly proud of Rebecca and, and my brother, Brian, for that matter, and, and all teachers who have uh, withstood this, this unprecedented pushback against their calling. It feels ironic then that some of the gains made by organized labor over the decades, if not the centuries, to create safer working conditions and put some constraints around how we treat human beings in the workplace, especially those gains made about how we put children to work, has been whittled away to some degree over the last few years. And I get it. There is a workforce shortage. And we have particularly locally, um, in some categories of workers, some really low unemployment levels. So I, I do understand that securing talent, retaining talent is, is a difficult business for business. But nonetheless, there is this increasing movement to open up working for children in different circumstances that have been previously disallowed to them. Could you speak a little bit more to that? situation and that irony. Sure. So in 1900, at the turn of the 20th century, 
There were 1.7 million children who were gainfully employed. I talked about the Fair Labor Standards Act that put into place a floor for regulating child labor. Many of us thought that we had solved that issue. Unfortunately, in recent years, it's reared its ugly head again. At last count, I believe there were 14 states who have introduced bills and in some instances passed bills to roll back their own child labor laws that they had passed in their own state in addition to what the Fair Labor Standard Act provides. For example, in Wisconsin, they introduced a law that would allow 14-year-olds to serve alcohol. It used to be 18, now it's 14. Iowa's introduced, and in fact, I think they passed their bill, Arkansas. So as you mentioned, Stuart, there's a, a critical need for employees throughout the country. In the state of Nebraska, every year, we are behind about 50,000 workers. So in the 2020 election, there's an organization in Kansas that was started by, we know them as the Koch brothers. Koch Industries in the 2020 election spent $1.1 billion. And this is all since the 2010 Supreme Court decision that equated free speech with campaign contributions. So with that amazing sum of money that was pushed out to various candidates and causes, that was really the impetus for this flurry of bills to roll back child labor in various states throughout the country. And the reason why I mentioned we're seeing a need for employees, but going back to the same arguments that were made in the 19th and 20th centuries for having child workers, well, they're easily controlled. They can fit into little nooks and crannies and, and perform the, the work that most able-bodied adults can't do. Back in those days, the children had to go to work because the families didn't bring in enough money. So the children brought in income to help support the family. Tragically, what we know is that the children being most exploited in this current rendition of child labor are immigrants. Those that are brought here who may or may not be accompanied by an adult but we saw it in packing plants in the state of Nebraska within the last year that children as young as 13 years old working in incredibly dangerous jobs in horrific conditions. And it really is one of those things that I'm in disbelief about, given if we can't have a universal understanding that child labor is an immoral practice, then what the hell are we trying to do? Why can't we come to an agreement on that, on that one simple issue that we don't want our children to be exploited or harmed or hurt? And we know that children working in, in those kinds of conditions, historically, it stunted their emotional, it stunted their intellectual, it stunted their physical growth. So to see that rear its ugly head again is incredibly disturbing. When you think about reimagining the the future and the relevance of organized labor for the rest of this century and recognizing you said you're a glass half full person. <laughs> what is that picture like for you? How do you 
reimagine the future of uh, labor in this century. So looking back, a lot of apprentices I talked to didn't, did not know that, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968, was in Memphis, Tennessee to march with striking sanitation workers. He was down to fight with the garbage men and women in the streets of Memphis. And that was sadly where he was assassinated. In 1963, Dr. King's March on Washington, perhaps the most famous speech ever, one of the most famous speeches ever given in this country, the I Have a Dream speech. That was a march on Washington for jobs. And at the time, organized labor wasn't completely on the same page, but there was union representation that day. Going forward, keeping those two things in mind, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my predecessor, John Kretschmar. John always talked about the fact that unions have four tools at their disposal that are interconnected, that they need to utilize at all times. The first being political participation. If you're not involved helping to get union-friendly men and women elected to any office, federal, state, local, the union movement's going to suffer. The second thing is obviously collective bargaining. That is the most important tool that unions have to sit down at the table to be equal partners with management. The third is organizing the unorganized. That's what I attempt to do, not organize them, but educate them about the values that organized labor brings to society. Democracy in the workplace, economic and social justice, have a values discussion instead of reciting factual data points, which are equally important, but the way we connect with people is through emotions and talking about our shared values. The last point, the fourth tool that John talked about that I continue to, to preach as well, is to continue to form alliances with like-minded groups. Solidarity is the most important word in the union and labor movement. If we can have solidarity among members, but also solidarity among the other groups out there, simply fighting for the common denominator being, we're fighting to make life better and a little bit easier for all of us. And looking down the road, I turned 50 this past March. So if I'm blessed to be around for the next day, month, number of years, however long that is, if we can continue to bring in like-minded groups that just want a better life for themselves and their children, if we can continue to talk about our shared values, unions are as American as apple pie. They've been around since the founding of our nation. I think that continues to be a very strong and potent message to bring to Nebraskans, to Americans. So I'd like to think that, again, the future of the labor movement is bright, but we can't be complacent about anything because elections have consequences and people have to get out and do old-fashioned organizing, knock on doors, make phone calls, talk to their neighbors, talk to their family members to make sure that these gains that have been made do not take a drastic turn in the other direction as we just talked about with child labor. So I foresee a bright future for organized labor, and maybe folks would disagree with me on that. There are hurdles to overcome. Union leaders, they live stressful lives. 
They get text messages, calls about their members, what's happening with their members. They get similar to teachers. They, they get uh, burned out. But with the winter of opportunity we have, right now we have, at least for the next year and a half, we have arguably the most labor-friendly administration in the history of this country. We have 71% approval among Americans for organized labor. We have men and women who want to join unions. Unfortunately, there's about $340 million spent annually for companies to hire union avoidance consultants to tell their workers unions really shouldn't be in our workplace. There are a lot of things to overcome, but with, with the sentiment prevailing in the country right now, I'm cautiously optimistic that the future of organized labor is bright. My guest today has been Jim Begley, the director of the William Brennan Institute for Labor Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Jim, thanks so much for being with us today and just sharing your own family involvement and just your hopes for the future of organized labor. So thanks, Jim. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.